When I knew I was going to cover the Claudia Lawrence disappearance, I decided it would be a good one to have someone come on and do an after show with me, chat about the case and some of the issues around it. And I saw that Jules from Riddle Me That and The Path Went Chilly had covered this case on her podcast. And being that she's a friend of mine and I'm always looking for an excuse to have my friends on my podcast, it seemed like a good opportunity for us. We talk about the gendered nature of the reporting, as well as talk a little bit about how we approach cases when the victim isn't the perfectly cast dateline victim who lights up a room. So I hope you enjoy the show. So I want to thank you, Jules, for coming on here, taking some time out of your day to discuss this case with me. So do you want to introduce yourself and your podcast to my audience? Hi, my name is Jules, and I have two different podcasts. The first one is Riddle Me That True Crime, in which I cover primarily cold cases, and I have a guest come on, and either I tell them about a case or they tell me about a case, usually one that they previously covered on their show, and then we kind of dissect that. And then my other show is The Path Went Chilly, which is kind of an offshoot of Robin Warder's The Trail Went Cold. Robin, myself, and Dr. Ashley Wellman, who's a criminologist, discuss cases that Robin has already covered on The Trail Went Cold. Robin is a friend of Crime Lines and has um, done crossovers with me, live streams, Patreon content. So I know my audience knows Robin, but I don't know how many people know that he has a second podcast. Yeah, and we've definitely spoken about you in glowing terms on more than one occasion because we're both fans of you, Charlie the Human, but also Crime Lines. I appreciate that. Um, Robin's one of the only people, and now I can expand that circle to include you, who will talk about like the most frustrating unsolved cases with me. Because most people are like, oh, that's I get overwhelmed and they walk away from it. But Robin and I can talk about little tiny details in these unsolved cases for hours. Yeah, you guys both have in common that you're like encyclopedias. I think you both can retain a huge amount of information about so many different cases. Like if I have a question about a case, I know I could ask you or ask Robin and I'm going to get pretty accurate information. Like even before today, when we were going to talk about this, I'm like, I could go back and look at my notes or I could go back and listen to my episode that I did with Jenny on this case. But I'm like, no, I want to kind of refreshed my memory on the details. So like Robin is my go-to. So I always love listening to his show. It's a such a good show. So, and I've been on Riddle Me That. We talked about Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, which, you know, I cover missing and murdered Indigenous women generally just about once a month. And I've been doing that for two years now. When people are like, oh, I want to cover more of those cases. I just don't know where to find them. I'm like, here, I have a list for you of ones that I've covered or I want to cover. So I was glad to be able to talk about that case with someone. It's one of those cases that really sticks with me. And I love that you have such a you know a big platform where you really pay a lot of attention to MMIWG cases. And I think there's only a few podcasters that are really doing that and especially getting these names out there so that people are going to know who Kaysera Stops Pretty Places is because you've been a major contributing factor in getting that story out there and so many other MMIW stories. Something that I became 
just interested in in general when I started Crime Lines. Actually, my first episode of Crime Lines is an MMIW case from Canada. And I just got more and more into it. And then I had a researcher come on and help me out getting more information, more cultural information, understanding things that I should be talking about, things I shouldn't be talking about. I have a habit of just getting in there and digging into issues and history. And then I'll come across a religious practice. Thankfully, I had the researcher be like, okay, I know you're, I listen to your show. I know your tendency is to explain everything. Sacred religious ceremonies you know, Kaysera is an example. She participated in Sundance. She's like, that is not for you to discuss. And I'm like, okay, like that she participated in it is fine. Talking about it and getting into it, it's a religious ceremony and taken out of context and kind of told in the way I would have told it wouldn't have been respectful. And I would have had no idea without her help. So Annie has just in that regard has been an amazing um, guidance for me, particularly when I started. I can't imagine like that's such an invaluable resource because I think like when we talk about other people's religious or cultural practices and we try to explain it or analyze it, I think we dilute it because it's so far from its source, right? You almost need somebody who is a member of that tribe to be like, this is my experience with this rather than us looking in and being like, well, I read this article and it says that for a Sundance, you do A, B, and C. Exactly. But that is what we talked about on your podcast. Here today, we are actually talking about a different case from the UK, and that is the Claudia Lawrence disappearance. Now, my listeners will have heard my full episode before they listen to this, and I know you covered this case. That's how I find people for my after shows is I find the people who've covered the cases to come discuss them because they're the ones who tend to know about them. So what got you interested in this case? What drew you into it? I think the first thing that I ever saw about the Claudia Lawrence case was I came across probably like, I don't know, I want to say like seven, eight years ago. It was before I started listening to podcasts and it was on YouTube. And it was this Donnell McIntyre special about the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence. And it was really, really good. I think he's a criminologist out of the UK. I'm pretty sure he's a criminologist. He might be a psychologist, but he's a really brilliant guy and he does really great analysis on cold cases. So he kind of went through all the details. And what really stuck out to me about this case was one, Claudia has this amazing family that her father since passed, Peter Lawrence has since passed away. But at the time he was in interviews and stuff. And it was like these people We'll go to the ends of the earth for her. And they were watching the British press, like the Daily Mail and the Sun, just shred Claudia. And it was because one of the police detectives who was the main guy on the case, up, the main detective on the case, he was, I guess, put in charge with looking through her phone records, speaking with those close to her. And although it was said to be a gross misrepresentation and kind of like inflation of certain details by the press and potentially by the police in the way that they said it, but it was said that Claudia had incredibly, I can't remember the exact quote, but that her relationships were complex. I think it was alluded to that it was with older married men. And then later in basically in the British press, they found one woman to go on the record and say that Claudia had been responsible for the dissolution of her marriage. And I think that was kind of the cornerstone of the British public really kind of taking this judgy 
stance with regards to Claudia. Like, oh, you know, she was out there breaking up marriages. She deserved to be murdered type of a thing. And we know that's just such ridiculous victim blaming. And it's interesting to see the shift because it happened pretty quickly because when Claudia first went missing, it's this this lovely 35-year-old single woman making her way in the world from a great family disappears off the street. And then a few months later, the investigator went on Crime Watch and said what he said and has admitted that he didn't say what he meant or how it was taken wasn't what he meant, but it was taken in this idea that she had all these secret liaisons behind the scenes, and all of a sudden it shifted. It was talking about, you know, there might be a jealous wife out there, and people were, the words homewrecker, homewrecker was used, you know, a scarlet woman, scarlet was a word that was used. Words, I just want to point out, we don't use with men. (laughs) We only use those with women. and. It seemed that there was a just such a big, quick, and gendered shift in the reporting on Claudia. And the fear was, and I get into this in my episode, that people would stop caring enough to keep covering it. I feel like the police, in the information that they released, like talking about the 10 men that they spoke to in Cyprus and saying that some of those men had said, yes, there was some kind of relationship but they didn't release if like all of them were married or not, but some of them were. And they said that like the reluctance of them to speak, they didn't believe was indicative of their actual experience with Claudia because they were saying they didn't know her. And then the police were like, "Mm, we think that she did because there is some kind of evidence circumstantial or otherwise to make them believe that. So it just, they really seem to like make this concerted, effort. I don't know if it was this like kind of institutionalized misogyny at the time with regards to the British press and the police, but either way, the way that they portrayed her, exactly what you said, nobody would be pointing to the sex lives of men and saying that they deserved it. It was just the fact that she was a woman and the fact that she was liberated and single. She wasn't cheating on anybody. She didn't owe anybody anything. Her family worked very hard to correct that perception. Her friends, too. People who lived quiet, private lives are having to say, we've found 12 relationships in six years. 12 men have been identified in six years. For a 35-year-old single woman, two relationships a year on average, and one of them was a long-term relationship, but why is that? such a shocking thing. There was a lot of pearl clutching in the sense that Claudia had these relationships and the fact that some of them may have been married, whether she knew that or not, isn't even mentioned. Just an anonymous source who said she targeted and went after these married men in the pub. And the pub's owner is like, that literally never happened. That did not happen. She never did that. And he'll go on record. He's using his name, but they're going to put the anonymous source first in the article. So you read halfway down and you get one impression, and then they put the person debunking it at the very end. It was very purposeful. Yeah, it's like if somebody makes it to the end to read that part. It's like they're trying to sell papers, and they've made her out to be this harlot that's out there trying to, like the type of woman that you should be afraid of if you're married. Because she will come in and steal your man. Therefore, 
Who cares if she's dead? Who cares if somebody harmed her? And at the heart of it, everything that we know to be a fact about who Claudia was is that she was a wonderful friend, that she was a great daughter. She had all of these great attributes. She had a really good job. She was quite successful for her age. She owned her own home. She had such a bright, promising future. And who she chose to sleep with or who she didn't choose to sleep with is really none of the general public's business unless it directly pertains to the investigation. Like they were a little too loose lipped with the way that the police phrase things and the British press, they just ran with it. And it was like, I don't know, I think it was grossly irresponsible. One of the things that I think is really frustrating in this is that it is statistically likely that one of Claudia's intimate partner relationships had something to do with her disappearance. That's just a statistical probability. But because of how it was handled by the police in announcing it to the media and how the media portrayed it, publishing people's full names, even when they were not participating in the article, made those people not come forward and not be more forthcoming. People who had nothing to do with it but might know something didn't want their name in a scandal. And so all of this reporting, even if it was entirely relevant to the murder, the way it was handled actually impeded the investigation. And people decided that whatever information they had and finding Claudia was not as important as their comfort and not disrupting their lives. And that's incredibly frustrating. It just feels like the humanity of Claudia is somehow lost in this. And it feels like the British press, like we know that the British press can be pretty brutal and they have in the past been very misogynistic. Like if we think back to the way that they've treated certain female royals and the way that they've shamed sexual partners of certain female celebrities, when the way that they just don't do with men, it's sort of like men are expected to go and sow their wild oats. And the fact that Claudia was doing these things, if she was or she wasn't doing them, I just don't think it changes whether or not she's worthy of having her story investigated. And I agree with you. I think the, in all probability, it was somebody that she knew. It may have been somebody that she was involved with in an intimate relationship, may have been somebody who just wanted an intimate relationship. But there's been so many people that have been arrested. Like you said, all those names that have been brought up and like, I know their names and I'm not going to say them because none of these people have been like officially charged. But do you find in all likelihood that do you think that there's a connection between those four men or like, I don't know how much of a connection there is because so little has been released on them as far as exactly why they were picked up It doesn't seem like the first two men who were arrested are actually connected to the last four. And those are the ones connected in York. Then you go out to the suburbs and now they have this whole new line of inquiry out there where they're digging up a cellar in that regard and questioning people there. So I honestly think at this point, just not enough publicly has been released for me to go in any direction. And it doesn't sound like to me, it's one of the cases where The police feel like they know who did it. They just can't prove it. It feels like they know probably down to eight to 10 people who did it, but they can't prove it in that regard. No, I agree with you. I really hope that in the future they find Claudia's body so that her family can give her a proper burial or whatever their funerary custom is. But also, 
so the police can investigate her remains and hopefully tie one of these suspects to it, to, you know, maybe some evidence at the scene. Maybe there's some DNA or some fibers, and then eventually they can actually charge this individual or individuals and move forward with the case. I definitely have seen a lot of times where the location the body is found has a connection to the killer in some way, whether they're just familiar with the area or it's a situation where, like in the Lori Vallow case, her kids' bodies were found on her boyfriend's husband, whatever he is, his actual property. So, I mean, sometimes it's not quite that obvious, but a lot of times if they know the suspect pool they're looking at, If they can find the body, they can see who has ties to that area. That may help. The fact that most of the people they're looking at are locals, I don't know how much it would help because they probably all have the same geographic profile. But there's something else I wanted to bring up about the media covering it. And I think this goes back to some conversations that happen in the podcast space. Uh, We joke even a little bit about Dateline. Oh, I'll never be on, my case, I'll never be on Dateline because I didn't light up a room. And, you know, how we have this tendency to want to represent victims as, as innocent, completely innocent and blameless and clean and live these amazing lives. It's frankly easier to do that if the victim did live this clean, flawless life. It's easier. And so, those victims will tend to get more coverage. I mean, I'm going to say it's not easy to get up here on a podcast and air somebody's dirty laundry. And I find myself often couching things and my audience will probably be like, yeah, we know we've heard it a million times where I say things more passively, like they fell into drug use. Well, I mean, they they use drugs, like, but I'll say it more passively to kind of soften it a little bit because I don't want to get up here and talk about somebody's dirty laundry when they're a victim. And I only do it if it's relevant to the story. Like I don't, I'm not going to talk about a 19 year old drug charge, you know, but I will talk about something more recent. Now, what I think this does though, is it means that the people who would handle cases with more sensitivity tend to avoid messy cases. So the only people left covering these ones that are in this gray zone with the victim are the ones who want to cash in on the drama, the scandal, the tabloid nature. So it's basically leaving us with two boxes. We have true crime that everyone lights up a room, and then we have true crime where every victim was a scarlet woman. I think we need to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable in the middle of it. So how do you handle covering cases, being respectful to the victim while also telling the full story? I've always tried to be empathetic towards the victim in the sense that I'm pretty good at putting myself in their position in that, like, I dealt with quite a bit of trauma when, you know, I was younger and childhood sexual abuse, those sorts of things. And there was a period, like, in my 20s where I was doing far too many drugs. I ended up going to rehab. I'm one of those people that is really lucky. So I've got a very unique perspective on being able to go, it's not an integrity problem. It's honestly somebody who's dealt typically with a lot of trauma, right? And trauma will lead people to have this response to want to lessen the pain. 
And drugs will lessen the emotional pain as well as the physical pain. So I can understand pretty much every victim when there's something that is looked at as being like not so nice about them. I try to relate it back to something personal. And Maura Murray is a good example of that too, right? When you're trying to explain, you know, the things that Moore has done. I remember explaining her shoplifting and being like, when I was a kid, I remember shoplifting from the store. Then like, am I a bad person? No, I'm not a bad person. But if you would look at that little snapshot moment of my life, I would look like a horrible human. And there are certain times in my life that I would have. And so I think we're looking at the worst elements of these people. I think it's just important that we're also projecting the best as well. And I think that the language that you use is being sensitive. And when you say somebody fell into drug use, what is preferential? They made a concerted effort to, you know, do these behaviors that lacked integrity without with blatant disregard for those around them. No, they were trying to lessen the pain in their lives. I think that you fall into it. You don't make an effort and like that's your end goal. Nobody has that goal. I definitely see the point on the language and it's something I'm trying to be mindful of to make sure that I'm saying what I mean and not just trying to to not say what I need to say. But I have actually covered a victim who was completely unsympathetic and I don't know if you've come up against this in any of your coverage, but I covered a man named Bob Dow. He groomed teenage girls. He provided them drugs and alcohol, and he took advantage of them in an altered state, including taking photographs of them. So we have literal proof of what he did, not just people saying he did this to me, like actual photographs of the sexual abuse he put these girls through. And he also cashed his mom's social security checks under the guise that he was caring for her when they when they found him dead. They found her horribly neglected and mistreated in the home. And he had been killed by two young women, a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old, who he had victimized. And a lot of the media coverage would very quickly brush over what Bob did, even though it's directly it's a straight line from what he did to why he was a victim he victimized girls he traumatized them there's some debate on the motive behind why they killed him but i can't say some are like oh well they were robbing him and i'm like i can't say that they would have killed him in the way they did if all they were doing was robbing him and actually there are there's like a long form article and a book about this case and it is called one of the articles is called Girls Gone Wild. Mind you, these are these are two teenagers who had been sexually abused by this man. It's called Girls Gone Wild, and there's a book called Bad Girls. You know, I try not to bring up anything not directly related to the murder, whether it's the perpetrator or the or the victim. You know, like I said, I'm not gonna do a 30-year-old drug arrest. That's not relevant. But I definitely have come across reporting. I felt it in my myself as I'm trying to report where we're just not comfortable with the the full truth. I just feel like we need to be more comfortable with the 360 view and we're just not. And I just, I don't know, we got to find our space in the middle. What are your thoughts on that? It's so hard. Like, to be honest, when it comes to covering a case like you just described, I couldn't even cover it. 
because I think I would have too much difficulty. Maybe part of it's triggering for me. I don't know. But trying to describe this person in a sympathetic light when there's obviously a direct correlation between what he did and the actions that they took. We don't know if there was another motive, if they also wanted to rob him or whatever, but we can say that they did it because of what was done to them. Right. Even if they were choosing to rob him, if they were doing, you know, these criminal actions, would they be doing them if he had never done what he did to them in the first place? Guys, cashing his mom's social security checks. I mean, I can't with a good conscience just sit there and be like, you know, oh, yeah, he didn't deserve to die because maybe I'm like a bad person. But part of me is going, I just I'm not really sorry. I don't believe anyone deserves to be murdered. Like, let me clarify that. But I am not sorry that somebody who has put so much pain out there into the universe, time on this earth is over. Yeah, because after he died, the girls who had been coming to his house were out from under that. His mom was put into care and actually taken care of, and she had a better life. The main thing I wanted when I covered this case, one of the things I wanted to talk about with the Bob Dow case was the prosecutor's issues with having an unsympathetic victim. Because if you want to say it's hard for us who are trying to report or or do a podcast or tell a story about this crime and be kind to the victim, we don't have to convince a jury. (laughs) We don't have to convince a jury that he didn't deserve to die. I don't have to convince anybody. So the reason I wanted to cover it was the prosecution's hurdle of having to tell the jury, okay, you're going to hear a lot of stuff you're not going to like. And yeah, not not a good guy, but they still shouldn't have done what they did. And they need to be held accountable for that. So the prosecutor's job was harder than than my job. But again, we can choose which cases we want to cover. And that's one where I really, I will say I was incredibly uncomfortable in talking about him because There is very little you can do in your life to make you redeemable from what he did. I mean, there's only so many neighbors' lawns you can mow. There's only so many people you can be nice to in the store. And I just have a really hard, I had a hard time with that one. I don't think I've covered a case ever that that extreme. But I've covered a lot of cases that are, like, not so clear-cut. Cases where someone was killed by an intimate partner, but when I look it up, they were also arrested on domestic violence charges because... It's not uncommon for the violence to exist within the relationship and not just be one in one direction. Sometimes the the person who was ultimately murdered at other times had been the aggressor. And that is reality. And I'm not going to not tell their story or not and not talk about what happened to them because they weren't perfect. I have another case I covered in my 12 Days of Crime Lines where a woman was killed because she witnessed something during a drug deal gone wrong. Well, obviously, she's at a drug deal for a reason. She was buying drugs. She was hanging out with drug users and people who trafficked in drugs. But that doesn't mean her case going cold didn't hurt her family and her kids and that she didn't deserve justice just because of this one circumstance. So most of my cases are not nearly so clear-cut as Bob Dow. Yeah, that's a tough one. Like I talked recently, it was before Christmas, I was talking to Maggie Freeling and we talked off camera, like off, you know, our recording. And we were speaking just about, you know, her choice of covering, you know, the murder of Yvonne Lane on Murder and Alliance. And 
she did a really fantastic job, I think is sort of like a case study in a long form podcast, which deals with an unsympathetic victim. Like Yvonne was somebody who was basically extorting, you know, people for money, saying that they were the father. She had abused one of her children who spoke on the episode. She was um, potentially using drugs. Like it was pretty, you know, well proven that she likely was. And she was likely engaged in sex work as well. So all of these boxes that you tick for an unsympathetic victim. And I think that all the things that she did were touched upon. But I think that like Maggie gave no opinion. So maybe like the way you cover it and the way Maggie covers it is sort of what I strive to do to not have too much of opinion when I don't have anything nice to say. I can definitely, definitely see that. And I mean, again, we have this this middle area that we want to be in where is where the truth is. And again, our opinions are not always useful. So I do think leaving opinion out of it is a way to report on people's complex lives without also making character judgments on them. Because we see this, there is uh, a case that everyone talks about, a case of a family annihilator. We generally don't look at the family that was annihilated and be like, well, she did kind of nag too much. But that's exactly what happened to Shanann Watts. People dissected her she did an MLM, you know, one of those multi-level marketing things, Thrive. So she did a lot of social media posts. She's selling a product. She's being a salesperson. So she's being up and the amount of people who were just angry at her for portraying a happy life. The number of people who decided that because her in-laws said she was overbearing, she must have been this horrible wife and horrible mother, and horrible everything, and people raked her over the coals, and I'm like, she didn't kill anybody. She didn't kill her kids. He did. She didn't kill her spouse. He did, and the way he got rid of their bodies is horrific, and I just can't see why or how people are going to look at that, and you can say, you can report that Shanann Watts was a perfectionist. She was maybe type A. You can report all of that without starting to use words that are charged, like nag or overbearing or whatever other words people are using. But to this day, even after he confessed and said what he did, there's just this narrative going around that's frankly offensive. That case is one that like, I could definitely never cover because cases with children I find really hard to cover, period. I've covered some and they're the ones that really stick with me and like they leave like an indelible mark because oftentimes you're dealing with violence or, you know, sexual violence against children in some cases. And in this case, you see Chris Watts, which the same people who are excusing his behavior are the ones that think he's quote unquote hot, which whatever. I mean, people have their opinions and I just think that that's a an unpopular opinion because nobody really wants to look at someone who's a family annihilator and think like, Oh, he's a good looking guy. Like, and the fact that he blamed Shanann and the fact that people further reinforce that by going in and like you said, digging up certain bits about Shanann, like sure. She portrayed this image on social media. What do most people do on social media? Even if they're unhappy, they're not accurately representing how they truly feel. 
Social media is an idealized version of ourselves. It isn't reality. A huge thank you to Jules for taking time out of her day to have this conversation with me about gendered reporting and how we portray victims in our reporting and our storytelling. You can find Jules on two podcasts, Riddle Me That and The Path Went Chilly, a Trail Went Cold spinoff.